Hello, and welcome to the 13th episode of Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. We're not your normal tech news podcast. We'll dig into the APIs, look at the tech specs, and sweat the details. We're not journalists, we're developers and computer scientists. I'm Douglas Shearer, and I'm here with my co-host, Ian Wallace. Oh yeah. I think we are a bit of a random tech news podcast this week. We've just got like a random collection of things we've been gathering over the extended Christmas break. But if, if we change the intro every time we change what we do on the podcast, it's not going to be much of a consistent intro. Yeah, okay. So we'll have an incorrect but consistent <laughs> intro. <laughs> okay. All right, so first up, you've got a load of nonsense about AWS EC2 F1 instances that makes no sense to me, which sounds like an ideal topic for this because it's clearly technical details no one else cares about. Um, yeah, pretty much. So you've put a link to a tweet in here. There's numbers, there's letters. Explain. I'll just read it out. For, so, so for the listeners... This is a tweet that Doug's linked that's someone saying, the ENAs on the new R4 instance type are a big level up, 475k PPS and 5 gigabits a second on R4.x large. The C4.x large can only manage 150k PPS. So I think that means he's got a good chance of beating this dungeon. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is uh, this guy is uh, Rick Branson. Um, he's currently an engineer at uh, Segment. He might even be the head of engineering. I think he was previously the head of engineering at Instagram. He's got a beard that screams back-end web dev to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's a really great guy to follow on Twitter. Obviously, we'll put this tweet in the show notes. But he's been testing the new Amazon AWS EC2 R4 X large instances um, for doing some processing work um, and he decided to test the network performance on them because these instances use the custom silicon networking we talked about in the last episode. Okay, is the R the R stuff is that memory optimized? I forget off the top of my head. I think R might just be the current like big compute. Okay. Um, instance they've gone away from having like a separate. They had like M M one M two M three. That, and then like C1, C2, C3. The R's also have like SSDs, they might have PCI SSDs and they've got like, you know, they, they claim faster networking and this is showing that it is faster networking. It's about three times faster with the new custom silicon. Uh, the PPS is packets per second. So single instance is putting 475 packets per second and if you follow the chain, it, chalks, it talks with them um, Joe D'Amato, a guy who's written amazing guides on networking, I'll link those as well, about the full networking, our Linux networking stack, and they have a bit of back and forth, and they fiddle with some configurations and actually manage to get it much higher. Um, so it looks like the Amazon's custom silicon is really paying off um, for their customers as well as for Amazon themselves. Okay, so who's who's this good for? What would you be doing that this matters? I think is obviously they've got a they've got a, a use case for it, some sort of use case for it. I think it's going to be in memory databases, things like Hadoop, where you're accessing some sort of central store that's somewhere else. You know, anything where you're doing a lot of network traffic, maybe even serving web traffic. Um, if you're doing, what would you describe it as? Um, like lots of web sockets where you're actually actively using web sockets and sending a lot of data over them. Okay. Um, you, you're going to need a lot of packets to handle that. So I mean, bigger the packets per second, the better. Yeah, I mean, you know me, I can definitely get on board with doing terrible things to computers. It's just normally CPUs and GPUs are what I abuse. So I've not done I've not done terrible things to net interfaces yet. Yeah, I think once you get to doing terrible things to net interfaces, that's a that's a. I don't know. A whole different level of um, 
spe- special operations. Okay, so yeah, it's, I guess quite interesting. So, so the other thing I had in here was the last time we talked about Amazon's EC2 F1 instances, which are the instances that have got an FPGA on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they've got one, they've got two different. They've got an F1.2XLarge, which is one FPGA, and they've got an F1.16XLarge, which is eight FPGAs on it. I saw a little bit of discussion, I think it was in a Hacker News thread, about, oh, this would be great for video processing. And Amazon actually, in their list of you know applications this would be good for, have real-time video processing. Um, I actually don't think that's the case. We've previously talked about the specialised... Um, Intel Xeon E3 1500s, which are perfect for doing real-time video processing at really low power usage. Um, these Amazon instances are quite expensive if you're using them for video processing. It almost doesn't matter how fast they are. Hmm. Um, they would be super expensive because the, the, the smallest instance is 122 gigabytes of RAM. Um, so that's that, that's a pretty beefy box to start with. Uh, way more beefy than you need to process video. Okay. So... Um... Yeah, I guess talking on data processing, our next thing here is I dumped in a, a link to the NVIDIA dev blogs where they've got some performance numbers for um, obviously NVIDIA GPUs over Power8 NVLink. <clears throat> and I thought this was interesting because it's the first time I've seen actually any numbers of running anything on it. And obviously they show what they want it to show, which is that when you start getting to very large data sets, it, it just kicks PCI Express. You know, it's... I mean, that's what it's designed to do. Um, if you look at this link, you, st- you scroll about halfway down. These are They're talking about simulation here, but then basically they're saying, yeah, you get a big enough data set that... Um, so, yeah, you see when the data set crosses the, the amount you can hold in memory on a P100, so that's the top-end Tesla, what you get in a GGX1, then suddenly you start to get these enormous performance gains on the NVLink um, Power 8 systems. Yeah, this is quite... They actually go into depth in this post about how the the sort of protocol the NVLink works um, and there's certainly some big numbers in there I saw one scrolling past there with, with they're talking about 700 is it gigabits or gigabytes per second there must be gigabytes For gigabytes yeah I think we definitely need to yeah. um, go into this in a bit more detail sometime because there's some super interesting stuff going on here I actually find it um, sort of taking a, a sort of meta level it's interesting that they're bigging it up so much on the NVIDIA dev blog because I know it's selling their GPUs but this the uh, IBM NVLink boxes are a direct competitor for the DGX1, really. Yeah. Meh, I mean, I guess they get to sell the GPUs either way, and that's what they're, they're interested in. Um, I do wonder if the DG1 will become a bit of a sort of technology showcase for them. It certainly seems to be that way. We talk, I think last episode we talked about the cluster they've built that, you know, you know people can go and see them and talk to them about whether they want to buy one or build something similar. Um, so I think NVIDIA do a lot of things where it's a tech demo, but you know they're hoping that someone else will pick it up and run with it and they just get to make the silicon. Yeah, I mean, certainly when you're talking about these types of machines, the DGX1 is the budget option very much. Uh, you know, only $130,000. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what have we got next on here? Oh, yeah, the battery meters we talked about. I mean, loads of po- podcasts have talked about this to death, really, but um, I think we can go a, a bit more in-depth here. So this was um, Apple's new MacBook Pros. There was lots of complaints about the battery life not being as good as people had hoped, especially under um, either really low use or heavy use. It just didn't seem to work as well as people expected it to, or certainly the 
it wasn't it wasn't very consistent for them and I'm not even going to talk about the consumer reports thing. We'll put a link into that and people can read about consumer reports terribly. I don't think you need to bother with like basically their test hit a obscure bug and they got weird results, end of. Yeah, okay. So Apple decided at some point they would remove in the battery menu that was previously a time remaining estimation that would say like, you know, six hours or whatever. They decided to remove that because it wasn't operating consistently. Um and yeah, I think that. So well, yeah. So this link is how you get a an estimate back again. It's um, some commands and a little bit of shell script you can use to get a to get an estimate. Um, this I've totally not followed this because I don't have a Mac laptop anymore. I'm desktop and iOS only. Um, have Have you been using this? Is there any way of getting this to actually appear in your system menu or? I have I've not been using this. I find that I, I go to an office once a week where I'm there all day, and the, the notebook lasts about all day. And sometimes it's nice to know if I'm going to get all day, or I'm going to have to, you know, plug a charger in. That's the only time it's really useful to me. So the rest of the time, my machine's at home, so I'm pretty close to a, a power socket. But these, um, the this um, the person who wrote this, who's called, oh. Ted, Ted and August, I've probably murdered that. He um, he goes into depth about where the sensor information comes from, how he's processing it. He gives the little um, shell script that, that spits out a time remaining for the battery. I, I've not done anything with this yet, as I say, I don't have much use for it. Um, I'd certainly be interested to see what the internal teams at Apple think. Obviously, the old estimation was based on some sort of... Um, Estimation based on the pre- battery life in some sort of previous period of time. Yeah, they're like a moving yeah. average over it or something. I mean, yeah. It's... So I, I do wonder if they could, you know, if the if the power switching modes of the CPU are such that it makes estimation difficult. Could you not employ some sort of more um, or some smarter method to do that? Maybe use, I mean, even machine. I mean, it uh, sounds like a solution to everything, but machine learning to go. Oh, you're doing this task is doing this now. Or last time we did that, it was this sort of battery life. That you know that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, part of me thinks it doesn't really matter if their estimates were a bit wrong. I mean, what what do people look at that number for? They look at the number to find out you'll be fine. Go find a plug or start saving stuff and shutting down right now. I mean, that's yeah. all you really care yeah. about. Yeah, um, but you can you could argue you get just from the little icon at the top. You know, if it's red, you need to start really doing. Things. But I mean, the more general interesting thing here is that um, certainly because I I do a lot of work in robotics, so I end up like monitoring power consumption of CPUs quite closely because I, obviously I want to understand power drain and battery life on the robots. And what I have seen is with every generation of Intel chips, the sort of maximum power draw, if you're running the things flat out, stays about the same, but the idle goes way, way down, right? I mean, yeah. getting down to sort of a watt or less, even in modern modern sort of uh, lower power, lower power full fat chips. Um, and I wonder if that just, it does just make it harder and harder to estimate the, the power consumption because you get this wider and wider dynamic range. Yeah, you wonder if something else happened though, because all the notebooks have done is gone from Haswell to Skywell, like Skylake. Sorry, um, the, the performance improvement, you know, power, you know, um, in terms of the power usage, must be in the order of like single digit percent. You know, it's not a huge jump, as I just would not noticed this inconsistency, yeah, inconsistency before. Yeah, because I mean, I've got Skylake uh, Linux machines, and they're not. There's not an enormously noticeable difference, right? I mean, they're all quite high power machines, draining the battery quite fast anyway. So there's 
as I said, there's there's less change there, but still, yeah, it's it's all a bit odd, really. I guess we'll never know. Um, so what have we got here next? You've got ah Zen benchmarks. So this is the yeah. So before Christmas, Apple announced their or Apple AMD. AMD announced. I'm their... surprised we <laughs> haven't seen apples with AMD chips in them yet. It's... Yeah, it seems like it's... yeah. No, yeah, this this may Ryzen might make it interesting. So AMD announced their new Ryzen chips. They gave a preview of it before Christmas. Uh, the usual AMD hype. They had some dubious comparison to some Intel chips in their demos. Uh, but there was a French magazine that. Um, actually posted some benchmark results or leaked some benchmark results. Um, so was it any good? That's what I saw I wanted to know. And what were they actually benchmarking here? Quite a high-end one I'm looking at. It's, it's looking like it's uh, in some benchmarks it's comparable to mid-high i7s in other benchmarks. It's down at the quad-core i5s. It's kind of mid-high-end. This is probably... So like the, the, vid- the video, the games benchmarks they had at the sort of mid to high end uh, Intel CPUs, just consumer CPUs, just ran away from it. Um, and the they've got um, a video encoding benchmark. It did really, really well there, and only got beaten by the Intel Core i7 6900K, uh, which is an eight core chip. Is that right? Yeah, it's an eight core chip. Um, it handily bet all the. Uh, four and six cores. So, so uh, as you'd expect, more cores is faster for things like video and cores. The interesting thing here, I think, is it's power compatible with Intel, power competitive with Intel. I mean, they're talking about it being a 90 watt chip, which is sort of higher end desktop chips before you get into the crazy Xeons. Um, yeah. But then all of this is totally meaningless without a retail price. I mean, if it yeah. was if it was way off in power or way under in power, it'd be a big deal, but okay, it's comparable in power to high-end Intel chips, so then all that really matters is the cost. Yeah, I mean, I think even if it was $100, say, let's say it's $100 or £100 more than a four-core consumer uh, Intel CPU, it's probably not worth buying for most people because you just don't use more than four CPUs, and most of the time you're lucky if you use four CPUs, eh, four cores at all, so having eight cores, you've got, like... You know, four, five, six of them sitting around doing nothing most of the time. Yeah, um, be interesting to see what their mid-range chips come out as. So there was a there was an interesting part of the power consumption as well. They quoted it as a ninety watt chip. This measurement shows it as a ninety three watt chip, whereas the in, Intel quote theirs they've just kept the same headroom for about the last four or five generations. They quote one hundred and thirty watt TDP for their high end you know, six, eight, and ten core CPUs, but the chips are like almost never over 100 watts. So there's a very different sort of um, approach to how they market the power numbers. The AMD are obviously deliberately trying to say, oh, it's a low-power chip, you know, look, you know, comparing it to the Intel numbers, but the actual Intel numbers are much closer to what this what AMD claims. Yeah, again, for sure. Like, I mean, again, as I said, I measure this stuff, and... Um... Anything up to the 50, 60 watt rated Intel chips, they do actually run pretty close to the advertised number, but when as soon as you get into the higher power desktop stuff, it's really hard to make them get anywhere near their TDP. Their TDP. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so it was the 130 watt thing's just a safety. It's, um, you know, if you're running a chip that's this big and hot anyway, you probably actually don't care whether it's 90 watts or 130 watts, but 130 watts means everyone can work out a nice amount of headroom in terms of cooling. Although, they, so moving sort of smoothly on to our next thing, the, the top end consumer parts are only 90 watts, so um, all the rest of the Intel KB Lakes are now announced and out now, and we'll dump a link into Anantech as ever, have some excellent tables comparing them all, and uh Top end there, the i7 7700K is, which is the top end four core, so we're not going to the extreme editions here, but that's 91 watts. Um, but yeah, so obviously when you go into the extreme editions, then they're up at 130, 140, some Xeons up to 160. Yeah. Um, yeah. So these, I mean, an Antec, we'll, yeah, we'll post a link to the 6700, sorry, 7700 um, review. It's like it's another like six, seven, eight percent on top of the previous generation at the sort of top end consumer level. Um, nothing to get too excited about. They do seem to overclock well. Yeah, I, the the uh, interesting thing here that everyone's excited about is the K series, so that's overclockable i three. Yeah, seventy three fifty K. Yeah, which I've seen a few. There's been a few benchmarks of that now, and people say it is really good, really overclockable. It is like half a seventy seven hundred K i seven. Um, but it's a lot of money. It's a hundred and hundred and eighty-five dollars, so like a hundred and seventy-five, hundred and eighty pounds in the UK just now. The problem is, um, it, it'll, you can, yeah, people are hitting five gig on it, but you can get a an i five for you know twenty bucks yeah. more, yeah, and twice the cores. So it's it's kind of a bit of a shame. It's like um, you have to be really kind of on a budget. But then I don't know. I can like having built a budget gaming machine. When you're on a budget, you're on a budget, and you know, it, yeah, that can matter. I haven't got a link for this yet, but there's been a bit of excitement about one of the KB Lake Pentiums that seems to be crazy overclockable. I think it's sixty pounds. Okay. Um, so it's a third a third of the price of this i seven, but will get you like eighty five, ninety percent of the performance. And there seems to be a bit of excitement about that as well. It depends what you're doing though. Like I mean I used up one of the dual core Pentium chips on my gaming PC because it was totally fine and that cost me forty quid. So I mean I think yeah, if you actually care about price at all, it's more about optimizing towards your workload than any specific chip yeah yeah um so getting off and, i was gonna say should we move on from cpus yep um so you put a python link in here what's that oh no, i see <laughs> the go running python yeah so this is a this is a project called uh, grumpy which is a great name and it's a go how do you describe it? it's a grow virtual machine or interpreter that runs python code is it not compiling it, is... it as in it's basically a go compiler that it takes as input python and then runs it yeah you are right it is it takes python basically turns it into go compiles it runs it on the go virtual machine and this has been released by google themselves uh, apparently the front page of uh, front end of youtube and lots of other google sites are still python so if, you know if there's a performance gain here they're going to make you know what do you mean still python with... python's a quality programming language yeah, but lots of lo- Google use lots of programming languages internally, um, and I sort of thought they might have moved the front end of lots of their sites onto something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems that isn't the case. I guess the front end of YouTube's huge, and when you, if you ever go into the back end, the sort of where you upload your videos and such like it, some of it still looks quite old. So it's obviously the same UI at least. So it certainly could be the same stuff running behind it. Um, but th- this, I mean, this might allow Google to, you know turn thousands of servers off if there's any sort of meaningful performance uh, yeah i mean they get the they get the fun of being able to make tiny efficiency gains and actually making meaningful differences because of their scale yeah 
Um, yeah. I noticed this Reddit thread is full of people going, oh, it's not Python 3, it's Python 2.7. Why is it only Python 2.7? Because no one uses Python 3. Yeah, Python 3 is a disaster. Yeah. Um, Python 3, Perl 6, yeah. The strings, no, just no, no. strings. Oh. <laughs> um, anything? This is, this is an interesting project. Um, one of the biggest things about it is it gets rid of Python's global interpreter, interpreter lock. Um, Python and Ruby both have this... It's, it's part of the design of the virtual machine, but it limits um, each language, each language virtual machine, to running on a single core at any one time. I was going to ask if this allows for some funky multi-threading. Yeah, so yeah, it allows for funky multi-threading. Um, even in this announcement post, I've actually got a graph showing the number of threads and like linear scaling of operations per second using Grum- Grumpy. Or Gr- yeah, I suppose it's Grumpy, it's pronounced, as opposed to C Python. Like C Python actually gets like half as slow when it gets to two threads and keeps going down from there um, whereas um, uh, Grimpy is completely linear so I mean if you're doing lots of networking code this is going to be great I've not had a chance to have a play with this yet, oh, that's quite uh, interesting I do, yeah. I do have some non-C using Python that would run fine on this that's one of the caveats lots of C extensions for Python will work so um, your favourite Mathematics libraries probably won't work with it. Yeah, they're nearly, you know, yeah, because they're nearly all calling out to assembly code ultimately for the yeah. um, super quick yeah. stuff. Or actually, for most of the stuff that really matters, they're hitting the GPU. So, um, yeah, it's interesting though. Um, interesting, and uh, no one else is going to talk about that on their broadcast. So it's a good, good topic. <laughs> uh, a more news thing here: you've uh, put in a link to the Razor Project Valerie thing, which is their crazy three-screen gaming laptop, and that's that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, every every year at CES, Razor managed to come up with some crazy concept, and this is basically just one of their. It looks like a seventeen-inch laptop. Yeah, and it seventeen. Looks like it's got a giant trackpad at the side of the keyboard. That's a bit mad, um, and it's got like two extra monitors on either side. So it's basically three. Is it almost yeah three four K displays side by side seventeen inch? Um, it weighs twelve pounds. You know, or less than twelve pounds. Yeah, that sounds alright to me. I, I would use this professionally. Like, I mean, yeah. people say like, oh, who's this for? Who would need this? Like people like me doing crazy stuff with lots of lots of graphics. You can never have enough screens. And yeah, if you do, if you do imaging on site, this would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, but I, I'm pretty niche in that. Like, I do like my work in the middle of the desert sometimes and stuff. So. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll post a link to this. There was actually a bit more to the story later on. The two, two or three of the prototypes actually got stolen from the Razor stand at CES. Uh, I still don't think they've managed to track them down. Um, so while we're talking about pixels, um, I spotted this is the most interesting thing to me in CES, which was the 32-inch Dell 8K display. That's pretty awesome. 33 megapixel display. That's incredible. So, so how, how do you run it? How many cables do you need? Uh, into a the pair of uh, DisplayPort 1.3. Um, okay. But the problem with that is, what have you got that can drive a DisplayPort 1.3? Uh, nothing unless you've got a Pascal Quadro chip, which are Yeah, I was going to say, a Quadro, quadro P6000 or something. Yeah, I don't think you can buy them yet. But um, yeah. the thing is, it really annoys me when all these consumer sites, oh, it's $4,000, $5,000, who's going to buy this? That's nothing if you make your money from it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did think it was a bit of a shame. Did you see any of the videos of their de- their demo model had like dead pixel stripe in it? Yeah, I mean, I think it looked like they'd just come to the show with a very, very early one and they maybe only had one didn't have the ability to swap it out on the stand so they just sort of put up with it. It's a bit yeah. of a shame how it's got a big black line in all the images though, but... 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, is it for sale yet? Is it on the website yet? Nah. I mean, they've got a price oh, on sale March the twenty third. Yeah, you know, five five thousand dollars. Yeah, as you say, if you make your money off it, that's fine. Um, yeah, and it should look at the specs for this more, see what the refresh rate. Sixty like. hertz it could be. Yeah, it could. Be oh, really I've, I've looked but, into it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all over this. As you say, it's the driving it that's the difficult bit. But again, if you've got think, a five thousand dollar monitor, it's not it's not an issue, is it? Yeah, and as this announced some new monitors as well that were quite exciting, sort of. Um, oh, at the lower end, yeah, the um, high refresh rate, twenty seven inch ones, right? Yeah, super high refresh rate. I think one hundred and eighty hertz, something like that. Um, but they're in a similar situation where you need DisplayPort one point three or is it even one point four? I can't remember. Um, you need a lot of power to run them, so it's sort of out of reach for most people. And they're, they're a far cheaper display than this, but you still need the power to run them. So hopefully we'll be seeing graphics cards appearing at the consumer level that support the new... Uh... Yeah, almost almost certainly. But, well, yeah, it's, it's hard. There's not a lot of need for it at the consumer level yet, and it's a thing that drives sales of quarters. But, yeah, it'll be interesting. It's certainly, it's an interesting time for me because at some point I'm going to have to buy new displays. Um, both of my displays here are, like, 10 years old, so... I need to get to the next thing. Yeah, I can't believe you're not on Retina screen yet. <laughs> well, I look at my laptop's Retina. I can see it just off to the side just now. <laughs> the, te- the text on it looks amazing. And I'll look back to my old monitor and it's like, oh, yeah, I can see the pixels from like two feet away. Yeah. Okay, so the, ne- the next thing I dumped in, just, I wish I had a higher risk photo of this. It's just a random thing I saw in passing, which is uh, Benedict Evans took a photo of the inside of the back of a Ford self driving car um, showing all their computer kit. And I just thought there was a lot of interesting stuff in there that I wish I could see in more detail. Mm. Have you looked at this picture yet? Yeah, I mean, the thing at the right-hand side with the strap over it, it looks like a battery, a battery and just sure. like a yeah, standard battery holder thing that stops it leaking everywhere. The thing at the top... There's um, a lot of Ethernet in there, which is... Yeah, it's, it's mostly networking gear, I think we can see. The thing in the top left appears to be the actual computer. That's yeah, some definitely. Sort of That's um, Highly cooled enclosure. It's got a G4 or Q4 written on it or something in the corner. Yeah, that could just be a, a label. That's, that's like in a standard industrial rack chassis thing. It looks like a rack mount sideways. Uh, I can yeah. see some CAN bus interfaces, which is what you'd expect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you say, it's mostly... It actually looks like, like Ethernet plugs like they're like rj45s they're not like SPS yeah it's probably because you drive velodyne lidar over ethernet and okay. they are prop that i would not be surprised if that isn't a poe switch and they are using giggy cameras because uh, okay. even 10 giggy cameras exist now it's like there's the jenny cam standards and stuff for driving your cameras over ethernet it's quite a, a standard way if you've got lots of cameras that's probably what's happening there yeah, um, maybe an interesting thing to look into might be to see if there's um, amendments to the CAN bus standard to actually support some of these things like coming up in the future. So you'd you end up just plugging the plugging the sensors into the cars like already existing networking, although it being a new car. But you know, the automotive industry would keep up with that. I wonder if they got the bandwidth for it. That'd be interesting. But I mean, yeah, this is clearly. I imagine that will be a bunch of PoE sensors because you can see hardly any of them are going into the, what's clearly the compute box. Yeah, I think there's a few. There's a few people. I think the first reply is someone says a wall looks terrible, and, then, and Benedict himself replies with normal for a development platform. That actually, if that's a development platform, to me it looks really. Neat. Know, yeah, I mean, as yeah. someone that works in some of the systems, <laughs> yep, that's neat. Yeah, um, it's not just cables everywhere. It's like the cables are all the right length, they're all in the right place. Yeah, also, actually, yeah, it looks really tight. In five years' time, that'll all be in the shoebox. Yeah, or or smaller. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, like a crazy stat today. There's as much, uh, so there's as much computing power in Apple earpods as there were in the fr- was in the first iPhone. That's mad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a, it's not a huge surprise. Anymore. I mean, that was ten years ago. The announcement was ten years ago on the seventh last week. You know, it's it's a long time now. So uh, on, the, on the kind of AI front, I mean, you put the link in here to the Alexa dolls house thing. Is is there really any interesting angle here? Other than it's probably not the news story everyone talks about. Uh, no, I, um, the yeah, this is this just amu- amused me. Um, there was a, a woman who a doll's house, a children's doll's house, turned up at the door of her house, and it turned out that their their daughter had just sort of innocently said to the their um, I'm not going to say its name their their Amazon listening device that she would like a doll's house. But that's that's not how it works, right? You you say ahoy Amazon, buy me a whatever, and it it then says. Oh, I found a thing of me. Yeah, ask you to confirm yeah, it. Yeah, but then you know they had a, there was some local TV news station CW six uh, San Diego, and the, in the in the broadcast they said the phrase that orders at a doll's house, and lots of people wrote into say, "Oh no, my thing ordered a doll's house." But as you say again, there's a confirmation. Maybe the, maybe Alexa went, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, I can definitely find you a doll's house. Do you want this one?" And they went, "No," and that was the end of it. Okay, so you've linked a paper in after this as well about hidden voice commands. What are we talking about here? Oh, this is a. You I mean you put this paper in? You can tell it, tell me about it, or I can skim it. Yeah. So, so there was um, there was a paper. I think I can't remember if we talked about it or or, or linked to it a little while ago, um, and it was about using um, custom printed spectacles on your face to confuse facial recognition facial recognition algorithms, and it looks like a. A dazzle pattern on a ship, or you know, modern car development platforms use them to call attention to themselves rather than disguise anything. It just looked like that, and this is the same thing for voice commands. Um, it's figuring out what parts of a neural network can be tricked into thinking one sound is another sound. Ah, so you can um, pl- ah, so you can play a noise that isn't a speech, but the network detects it as speech. Is that what this is about? Yeah, ah, brilliant. Ex- yeah, yes, ex- exactly. This is a. This is a really good paper, I think. Um, this oh, that's is the, a nice idea. Yeah, the the best paper I've read this year. It's really well written. It's easy, you know, easy enough to understand if you're reasonably technically minded. But I think also the idea of it is um, super titillating. Like it's, it really makes you think about how these things work. Yeah, because how we don't quite understand how. Yeah, of course, because you could play a noise that just sounds like noise or white noise or something, and someone's Alexa would interpret it as a command and start doing things without their knowledge because yeah. they wouldn't understand the command that had been told. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it could even I mean, it could even be like a tiny, short, you know, outside human range of hearing noise. They talk about that. Um, yeah, it's, this, this is a, a, a great paper with an amusing idea. Yeah. So, so while we're on the, um, the hype train of machine learning, shall we move up a carriage <laughs> to some deployed machine learning here, which is... Um, Google have uh, rolled out their Razor image compression stuff to all seven of the users of Google Plus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I mean, is, I seems... is this not actually a deployment to the? So this technology is in Chrome as well. Uh, I don't know if it's in the release versions of Chrome yet. But basically, it's a neural net to do rescaling images bigger, and this basically means for the devices they're using it on they can run an infant step to do the resizing on device. So they're running the neural network on the device and it means they only have to send a quarter of the pixels to the device and it reconstructs the image to be perceptually identical, which is really quite yeah. incredible. 
Um, and it's a real shame it's just Google Plus, but uh, there you go. Um, so they've published a. I don't know. If, yeah, they have published a research paper. They published a paper, but there's no code and models out yet. So this this sounds like a fluff piece because, like I say, you need to have something on the device or on the browser to make this actually happen. Yeah, so that's why they've done it within within Google Plus. They've the, deployed the um, app. But I mean, because even though they're only deploying it to a small subset of users, they still say the stat here they've got is they've they've used it to serve a billion images. Yeah, yeah, a billion images per week. Yeah, it does say um, begin this rollout for high resolution images when they appear in the streams of a subset of Android devices. It'd be nice to know what that subset is. I, mean, I guess it's the Pixel. I, I think it will be a subset of stuff on Snap, the recent Snapdragon 800s because they have the um, TensorFlow supports using their DSP chips to do some of the matrix operations and things. So they get... uh, yeah. I'm seeing a bunch of things we've talked about in the last sort of clicking together to make this happen. Yeah, but I, I just thought it was interesting that there's, yeah, as you say, there's there's a lot of the underground things we talked about. This is this is the consumer-facing result. You get, a, you know, twenty-five kilobytes instead of a hundred kilobytes via a nice high-resolution image. Um, yeah, it's, it's always kind of fun to talk about the more technical aspects of something in papers and papers, and then see it actually become a consumer product, or in this case, a limited rollout consumer product. Yeah, and then I think our final thing here, which is again the same thing, you you put in the link here that, where did I put this link in? But anyway, uh, OpenAI have rolled out their GTA Five implementation in Universe, which is. Um, what Universe is doing is basically a glorified, I mean this is massively belittling the engineering effort behind this but it's <laughs> it's a VNC server that you can hook your neural network up to so yeah. the input is just the screen pixels and it's the neural network gets a mouse and keyboard or, or in this case a joystick to um, hook up to and drive cars around in GTA which is pretty cool yeah yeah, so the the biggest discussion around this that I saw was on Hacker News and maybe Reddit as well, was people talking about the difficulty of actually running it because you need to have two reasonably pow- graphically powerful computers, at least one gaming machine and then one machine that you ah, can run the neural network on. They have set up so you can run cloud, you can run GTA Five on a cloud instance, so it's super easy. Ah, I did not see. I did not. It's see not that. in this blog post, but. Um, uh, if you read it, people are using it. People are typically getting this up and running in like twenty minutes. Okay, I think this is something I might have a go at. Uh, yeah, because it certainly looks like a, a good fun sort of learning thing, and the, the code is just Python. And I guess it's it's the most of the OpenAI's Python and is it TensorFlow they use? I can't TensorFlow and Cafe, they've got pre-trained models okay. you can try out if you want to yeah. try something that'll work out of the box. Um, yeah, it says here oh, twenty frames a second over the public internet um, in practice I've seen people typically running at about 7 frames a second but a lot of that will be to get their neural networks running up to speed because it takes okay. quite a lot of effort to optimise things and if you're just experimenting you might not want to do that yeah I think the, the graphical frequency you know the refresh rates will be much less important for the AI than it is for our human eyes to sort of be fooled into thinking we're seeing a, a continuous image yeah I mean yeah the, this example video they've got here they're running 8 frames a second but yeah. um, that's quite interesting so I think that's pretty much all our random topics we may have to pick a, an actual topic for next week um, so thanks for listening to Pink Out uh, we put the show notes online at pinkoutpodcast.com uh, and at the show's account on Twitter at Pinkout Podcast. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the underscore accidental, and Doug is at Douglas F. Shearer. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback. You can tweet us, you can use the hashtag SPinkout. If you want to send us long feedback or explain how wrong we got something with reference to an API documentation and CAD drawings, then do email us. 
we're at wrong on the internet at pincountpodcast.com. Um, I got my gaming PC. I mean, it has been a while since we recorded and I did get it about five days after. So there's, there's only one question everyone cares about here, which is what <laughs> RGB colour scheme are you rocking? <laughs> yeah, so I got one of the Alienware Aurora R5s and you can change the colours. Right, the right. We all want to know what, what colour are the lights? I think just now they're green, it's not turned on, so I can't actually remember. No. I don't really pay it that much attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a long time, it was facing the wrong way at my desk, so I couldn't see any of the lights. But when I, I got a new desk, which I might we can maybe talk about in a future episode, um, um, and I turned it the right way around, I was like, oh, yeah, it's got lights, I can change the colours. And I think I changed them once, and I never opened the thing again. I've done what you said, just run the, run the machine in it as much of an appliance-like manner as possible and just make it start with Steam yeah. and launch stuff from Steam and never look at Windows. You, are you, it works great like that. you booting straight into Steam Big Picture then? Or? Yeah, I've done that a little bit. It's not Big Picture just now because I used it to do some browser testing earlier on um, for a, a project I'm doing just now. Um, but yeah, it seems fine. Uh, noticeably, I think I maybe said this before... Um, Microsoft's new browser Edge I was thinking oh, I was really slow but then I realised it's because I've got no ad or tracking blocker on it so it's just loading loads of garbage if it takes you know if you're wanting to use it for that internet. you could just have it booting into Steam Big Picture you could add Edge as a, a non-Steam app and then you could run it remotely over Steam in home streaming and then use it on your Mac like that that's a great idea I'm going to do and then that. you can just have it in a window on your Mac but it's actually running on the, on the uh, PC yeah I won't even have to go and sit at the other desk to do that yeah so you can you can add all sorts of stuff in there. You can add a shell like that and then launch things, but I'm not sure how well that works. 